Amanda. And I'm Kristen. And, and we, we are, are the Extra Sisters. Sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome back to another Haunted Happy Hour. And this is a part two of one we did. Actually, it was our first Haunted Happy Hour this year in January. We're doing an Unsolved Mysteries part two. All of mine are potentially dead people. Maybe just missing. <laughs> potentially. Probably dead. I mean, once people are missing for a certain amount of time, they're, you know. Right. You know, like A&E says, like the first 48 they probably did. Yeah. I mean, I hope not. Well, actually, I know some of them are dead because they're murder cases. We just don't know who done it. One of them. Okay. Two of them. Two of them. Fifty percent of them. <laughs> <laughs> the other ones, mm, toss up, toss up. But I don't know about you. Like, I know last time we did unsolved mysteries, there was like that weird stuff that fell from the sky that was like gelatinous that had like like human white blood cells mm-hmm. in it do you remember that yeah that was yeah. creepy i know so we did like some other stuff so if you want to listen to that one again i'll go all the way back to january we have like 260 something episodes so you'll be scrolling for a while but <laughs> right this one for me focuses more on people so what about what about you what are your themes we got going on here I mean, it's mostly people, but I have one that's, like, just feet, so that's interesting. We'll see about that. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, other than that, it's mostly people. Feet. Feet, which, now that I've brought it up, I'll start with that one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, so this is the Severed Feet Mystery. In 2007, a girl was roaming a beach in British Columbia when she found a sneaker. To her horror, as she opened up the sock, she found that a human foot was inside. Since then, a number of severed feet have washed ashore. The feet have been connected to five men and one woman, and three of unknown sex. Throughout the years, with a hoax foot thrown in here and there... A hoax foot? Where did you get the hoax foot? Okay. I don't know about all that. The Somebody case... said, I'm going <laughs> to add to this hysteria. Like, is it a fake foot from, like, the spirit store? Or <laughs> did you cut someone's foot off? Hoax foot. Hmm. That might right. be worth, worth a Google. <laughs> right. Throughout the years of the hoax foot thrown in here and there, the case has never been completely closed, with many theories floating around as to who the feet belong to. The Vancouver police managed to identify one foot in 2008, matching its DNA to a man who was described as suicidal. They later were able to match two other feet of a woman who was also believed to have committed suicide. Because of these findings, many speculate that the feet belonged to those who jumped off a bridge to their deaths. However, because of the rarity of only feet and no other body parts showing up, some believe that the feet were connected to a plane crash by a nearby island. Others suggest they were those of victims of the Asian tsunami of 2004, since the make of the shoes were all manufactured before 2004. Whatever sources these feet are coming from, they have left the world baffled for years. I've heard about that. I actually brought that up recently when we were talking about something. Then it was really funny because we didn't know we were going to talk about that at all. But I was (laughs) like, "Mm, Canada's got some weird shit going on, too. People's feet just wash up on their beaches. So, yeah, super weird. What do you think if it happened one time and then like other people that killed people just started doing it for funsies? Like they have a secret society of serial killers and they were just Gross. like, you guys, what if Gross. we just all did this thing to. You never know. I mean, I used to watch Bones and I know in one of those episodes they were talking about like a body 
farm basically for the FBI so that they can see at what rates maybe bodies may decay so that they can figure out how a person died later on. I know they talked about sometimes those get flooded and small appendages like maybe feet will float away, especially if they're still in shoes. So that's what I always thought it was. There's one of those in Texas at a university near it, like in Huntsville. So there's like our most maximum security prison. I say our, I don't live there anymore, but that's where I'm currently <laughs> at. So there is a max security prison. And then there's also the biggest criminal justice university in the state. And they have one of those, uh, cool. like where you can, the criminal justice students can go out and like, they'll learn like crime scenes and stuff with like actual corpses. That's so cool. I'm sure the smell is. Oh, absolutely terrible. But I'm one of those yeah. creepy crime people. That would have been so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So just go out to the body farm at the university. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So this is the case of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. Shortly after midnight on August 23rd, 1987, 17-year-old Kevin Ives and his best friend, 16-year-old Don Henry, set out to go night hunting, which just sounds like a bad idea in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Not for, like, spooky reasons, but for, like, you're going to kill, like, accidentally shoot someone reasons, you know? Right. In the, in the wooded area along the railroad tracks near Don's home in Bryant, Arkansas. Four hours later, a 75-car, 6,000-ton cargo train made its regular night run to Little Rock. It was over a mile long and was traveling at speeds of over 50 miles per hour. As it approached Bryant, engineer Stephen Schroyer, there's an R in there that shouldn't be there. <laughs> I'm sure that's how it's spelled, but it's hard for me to say. Engineer Stephen Schroyer noticed something on the tracks. He soon realized that there were two boys lying motionless on them. That was Kevin and Don. Kevin and Don appeared to be covered by a light green tarp. Don's twenty-two rifle lay beside them. They were lying parallel on the tracks. Despite blowing the diesel horn several times, they did not move or react at all. Stephen attempted an emergency stop, but it was too late and they were hit by the train and killed. The state medical examiner, Dr. Malak, determined that Kevin and Don were under the influence of marijuana. Okay, I have been under the influence of marijuana, and it has never made me once want to lay down on a train track. <laughs> just, or been just have a nap. so high that I have mistaken a train track for my mattress. Okay. <laughs> he concluded that they had smoked approximately 20 marijuana cigarettes. That is a lot of marijuana, though. Maybe they just fell over. <laughs> <laughs> they tripped over the train tracks, and they could not get up. He believed that they were in a drug-induced coma when they were hit. He ruled their deaths accidental. However, their families did not believe this and were certain that they were murdered. They did not believe there were any drugs involved. Kevin and Don's families also could not understand why they laid down in identical positions if they were under such a high influence of marijuana. They also did not believe that they could sleep through the loud sound of the diesel's horn. Don's father did not believe that he would lay his rifle on the gravel as he took such great care of it and he didn't even want it scratched. Kevin's family hired a PI to look into the case. Every time he would try to question police or other investigating agencies, he was met with resistance. They seemed to be unwilling to cooperate or change their opinions about the case. Five months after their deaths, Kevin and Don's parents held a press conference hoping to get the case reopened. Their plan worked, and the next day, it was officially reopened. 
Prosecutor Richard Garrett and Kevin and Don's had their bodies exhumed for another autopsy. A new pathologist concluded that they had smoked between one to three marijuana cigarettes, which is much less than 20. So why yeah, did could why you did imagine cops... packing 20 out there? Jesus. No, I cannot imagine taking 20. Just call them joints. Marijuana cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also just having the lung capacity to <laughs> knock down 10 of those things between two. I wonder if it was like smoked 20 of them each because then that would mean they would need 40 or 20 as in 10 of them each i feel like it's also a gallon bag of joints out there it'll be fine a freezer sack full of (laughs) marijuana cigarettes he also found evidence to indicate that one of them was already dead and the other unconscious when they were hit by the train In July 1988, a grand jury reversed the ruling of accidental death and ruled their deaths to be probable homicides. Garrett next focused on the light green tarp allegedly covering Kevin and Don. Multiple witnesses on the train confirmed. Can you imagine being a witness on the train? No, 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 no. (laughs) They confirmed seeing it covering them. However, police who were initially on the scene later claimed that Stephen never told them about it. He insists that he did. Although the initial investigators claimed it did ex- didn't exist, Garrett is certain that it was there. Strangely, it was never found. Which cop killed these guys? Right, exactly. Which or cop was in it? on it? Yeah. Or fucked up the investigation. Six weeks after the case was reopened, Garrett found that a similar case occurred in Hogden, Oklahoma, in which two young men, Billy Hanline and Dennis Decker, were found lying on railroad tracks and hit in 1984, positioned almost identically to Kevin and Don. However, police have found no suspects in their deaths. Garrett and Kevin and Don's families are convinced that they were murdered. However, they do not know why the suspects were committed, how the murders were committed. The case remains unsolved. A week before Kevin and Don were killed, an unidentified man wearing military outfit was spotted in the vicinity of the tracks. His behavior had aroused suspicion. Police officer Danny Allen stopped to question him. Suddenly, he opened fire on Officer Allen. The area was searched, but he was never found. On the night Kevin and Don were killed, witnesses again saw the same man in military getup. This time, he was leaving town, heading down a road less than 200 yards from the spot where Kevin and Don were later hit. Police have been unable to locate or identify him. The case first aired on October 12, 1988. It was also the subject of the book The Boys on the Tracks by Martha Leverett, published by Bird Call Press in 99. It ranks as one of the most remembered in the series. This is still an unresolved case, and we still have no other suspects. Interesting. Poor kids. There's a picture of them. Mm. The little babies. That was absolutely 16. a murder. Like... And the cops covering it up, they either fucked up the investigation or I can't, I don't know why they would cover up the, one of the cops did it. It's just weird. Also reading on Wikipedia while I was following along with you that the, one of the moms thinks that it might've been a drug thing. So I could see maybe this military guy or the cops are on the pay on the take for them growing marijuana out there. And the boys saw something. True. That's true. That happens a lot. Yeah. Mm, sketchy. Yeah. That's sad that those two teenagers had to pay the price for that, though. Like, a green tarp and the cops didn't even... Mm-hmm. 
right. The Terra Calico case. On the morning of September 20th, 1988, in Belen, New Mexico, it seemed like a perfect day to ride a bike. Tara Calico borrowed, borrowed her mother's pink bike to go out for a spin. Extroverted and active, she worked as a bank teller and was studying to be on either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. She planned to play tennis that afternoon and asked her mom to drive out after her in case she got a flat tire and didn't return home by noon. She never did return. Every lead went to a dead end until a year later, when a photo was found dep depicting a young woman her age and a missing boy both gagged. The Polaroid photograph was found in a parking lot outside a junior food store in Florida. The nine-year-old Michael Henley went missing in the same area as Coleco in April of 1988, when he was hunting turkeys with his father. They appeared to be in the back of a van, with a copy of a book written by V.C. Andrews, Coleco's favorite author, lying right beside the girl. Initially, Tara's mother didn't think the girl was her, but the girl in the photograph had a scar identical to Coleco. But still, due to the lack of evidence, many experts dismissed the photograph. In 1990, Michael Henley's body was found in Zuni Mountains, where he was hunting, which strongly disconnects the theory that the two were ever abducted and taken to Florida. Coleco's parents would eventually die, never finding out who took their daughter. That's also one of the other reasons I want to be a parent. Someone takes my kid, I'll go full Liam Neeson, but I will die immediately. <laughs> I don't know, like I know that's all movie shit, but I would not be able to live my life if my kid disappears or something happens to them. I will immediately go all homicidal, but I don't have the wherewithal, I think that's the word, to be any use to anyone, so I'll just get myself killed. Hey, you're starting to work out. Maybe you could be like I saw the devil and fucking just be a badass. Yeah, I'm starting to work out, but I added two and a half more pounds to my bench press today, and I thought I was going to die, so we're not there yet. So. I get that. I get that. I'm literally just doing squats, and I'm stuck at 25, and every time I get to 30, I feel like I'm going to die. So I was just correct that I added five pounds to my bench press today. Ooh. I know. I know. But see, that's why I can't go Liam Neeson on anyone, <laughs> because again, thought I was going to die. I got I to like, like you know, the 10th. 10th up and I was like mm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so upset about it though like I know it's just age and it happens to everybody but I'm like I remember when I could run and I could do whatever and didn't even get winded and now I'm like oh my god I'm gonna have a heart attack yeah I did 30 minutes on the treadmill yesterday and I was like I'm gonna jog a little bit in between and I was like I can do about uh, 60 seconds of jogging and then I'm like my shins exactly <laughs> like, my calves my left foot like what the hell are all these aches huh <sighs> Remember when we used to play tag? Yeah, like you used to be able to do fun things. I used to be able to take the laundry up and down the stairs without being like, all right, I need, I need a second. <laughs> Back in my day. Right. Man, that sucks though. You have to take your laundry up and down stairs. Oh, I guess. I mean, we do too. But we fold it. Like our washer is on the main level, you know? Mm -hmm. So we like fold all our laundry and stuff. But mm. Yeah. I don't have like a laundry room, so there's not like a safe place to fold anything in there. Oh, yeah. So you got to kind of just take all your clothes back mm -hmm. and do it there. Yeah, no, that's that's old people shit right there. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know what's weird to me? This next one I'm talking about, like the FBI has a whole page for her. And like, it's not that I don't know that the FBI has a website. I just never think about it. So the mm -hmm. fact that I'm just on the FBI's website just feels dirty. Tell me about it. I was on like 
a website called Police One, and I'm like, police have, like, websites for investigations? Like, of course they do, but I, weird. Yeah, like, this one is, like, okay, this is still a very active, most wanted kidnapping missing persons one, this next one, and so they have, like, you know, like, this is what she probably looks like today, and, like, this is the tip line specifically for this one, you know, this is when she was last seen, and how much she weighed, and, like, submit a tip here and it's like hmm it's just whack like Mm -hmm. not whack but like it's just it's crazy and then I was like going through the FBI's website and it's like 10 most wanted fugitives fugitives capital violence terrorism and I'm like this is spooky (laughs) it's like (laughs) just the FBI website and they're like and then there's a whole tab for Indian country and it's like oh okay that's sad Anyways, this is the abduction of Antoinette Cayadito. Gallup, New Mexico lies within what was once the territory of the Navajo Indian Nation. On April 6th, 1986, the 80s were wild for abductions. The 80s and the early 90s. I was going to say, so we had serial killers in the 70s, and then we abducted people in the 80s. We just abducted a shit ton of kids (laughs) in the 80s. We killed everyone in the 60s and 70s. We're just serial killers rampant. And then we started just abducting a fuck ton of kids in the 80s, and they've just never been seen again. On April 6, 1986, the quiet community of 18,000 was rocked by the mysterious disappearance of nine-year-old Navajo girl named Antoinette Cayadito. When her mother, Penny, awoke that morning, she was surprised to find that Antoinette was not in the house. We went looking for her around the house. Nothing. I didn't start panicking until we checked with all the neighbors, went to every house, and nobody had seen her. The police and Penny's neighbors searched the surrounding foothills but found no trace of the little girl. Authorities were almost certain she had been kidnapped. The days stretched into weeks, then months. Police could offer little to bolster Penny's hopes of ever finding her daughter alive. Finally, after a year had passed and all seemed lost, a dramatic call for help came into the Gallup police station. The voice claimed to be Antoinette herself, and the dispatcher asked her where she was. But before the girl could answer, the call was abruptly ended by an unidentified man. Detectives played a recording of the call for Penny. I listened to that tape over and over and over, and just by the way she says her last name and the way she screamed sent chills all over my body. A mother knows, and I know that was her. The phone call renewed hope for her safe return. However, four torturous years passed without any further clues. The FBI released two computer-enhanced photographs showing what she may look like at the age of 14. Four months later, according to agent Kevin Miles of the FBI, a possible sighting of her was reported in Carson City, Nevada. A waitress in at a restaurant in Carson City told the Carson City police about a strange incident that she had witnessed that particular day. She waited on a table at which sat a male and a female, rather unkempt, and a small girl about the age of 14 or 15. The little girl would deliberately drop a utensil on the floor. The waitress put the utensil back on the table, and the little girl grabbed her hand. The waitress thought nothing of it and went about her business. They left the restaurant, and the waitress went back to the table and began to bust the table. She lifted up the plate belonging to the girl. Beneath was a napkin that said, Please help me. Call the police. By the time she realized what had happened, the couple and the girl were gone. Shortly after the Carson City sighting, Penny turned to her own Native American heritage in search for her daughter. She and her other daughters visited a respected Navajo medicine woman skilled in performing traditional tribal ceremonies. 
The medicine woman performed the crystal ritual, which is said to make contact with the spirit of a missing person. According to the medicine woman, Antoinette is still alive and may have a child. She was being held against her will by threats of violence somewhere in the Southwest. Penny was amazed that the information provided by the medicine woman was consistent with elements of the detective's investigation. Going to the medicine lady gives me a lot of strength and it helped me just to know that she is alive. No matter who she's with, they've got to have some compassion not to hurt another human being as small as she is. Antoinette was nine years old when she disappeared. Today she would be in her 30s. She has brown hair and brown eyes. Her birthday is December 25th. And you can go to... Yeah, you can go to the FBI's most wanted website. Her name is Antoinette Christine Cayadito. And they do have a composite of what she would probably look like today, as this is still an active missing persons case. And also, if you Google this case, you can see a photo of the napkin that she left the waitress and some like footage of some of the searches and you can hear 911 calls and things like that Jeez, that one made me really sad i'm sorry (laughs) i just like could you imagine christmas with that family like christmases have already got to be terrible with missing people but then like it's also her birthday yeah and you know you never know like with elizabeth smart and stuff some people turn up like 20 30 years later yeah, you know, but it's just decades. So different. Like I also know the Stephen Stainer case, and he got abducted when he was a little boy. Came back around when he was sixteen, and he ended up dying like five years later, just because he was fucked up and he was an alcoholic, and because <laughs> of everything that happened to him. So it's like you're still not the same. You're not going to get that person back ever. Right. And they, you know, if she has something like Stockholm, she's not going to want to. Right. Especially if the medicine woman was right and she potentially has a child right now. It's even harder. Yeah. Which is awful. Like when you know there's been some sort of assault type situation. Yeah. Like JC Dugard having her two daughters in captivity with this man. No. Yeah. So sad. Absolutely. All right. The dead woman who named her killer. Although this case has been solved, how it was solved remains a mystery. In 1977, a respiratory therapist in Chicago was murdered in her apartment. Teresita Bassa was found under a flaming mattress, a butcher knife buried in her chest. Police attempted to track her stolen jewelry with no luck. They also failed in trying to link any of the suspects to the crime. It seemed impossible to find the perpetrator, that is, until Remy Chua, a co-worker who barely knew the victim, involuntarily became a leading source of information. Chua began having frequent visions and nightmares about Basa. It started in the locker room of her work, where she experienced seeing a man's face behind Basa. This would repeat in her dreams. Chua then began channeling Basa's spirit when conversing with her husband. While channeling Bossa's spirit, Chua told her husband the entire story of Bossa's murder. She claimed an orderly at the hospital named Alan Showery was helping Bossa with her television when he assaulted her. He then killed her and set her mattress on fire. The spirit was even able to give the details of what happened to her jewelry, which was given to Showery's common-law wife. Mr. Chua convinced his wife to give these details to the police. 
The police were skeptical at first, but after seeing the boss's jewelry on Shaori's wife, boss's cousin was able to confirm it just as the spirit said she could. The police were able to convict the man for 14 years in jail. Unfortunately, there was not enough evidence to convict him longer. But was it really boss's ghost who named her killer? Perhaps Chua had knew had known some facts in the case and disguised it as a spirit possessing her. Whatever led the police to the killer remains to be a mystery. Mm. I love when mediums are involved. Yeah. <laughs> or anything like spiritual like that. Yeah, I mean, you never know. It might be total bullshit, but you know. Right. Like she could have been a part of it or something. Yeah. You never if, she, know. if not, that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes there are instances of police seeking them out because they're like super desperate, you know? Right. They're like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just let's go talk to the medium and see what they say. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's just on TV. I'm pretty sure I've actually heard about that. Yeah, I mean, I just talked about the Steven Stainer case that happened in his case when he first went missing. They brought a medium in, and she actually found out where he was, but they it happened to be the same exact trailer park that his grandfather lived in, so they thought that maybe it's just because he was visiting, he had visited him there in the past, so she was wrong. She wasn't. He was actually there at the time, and they missed out on getting him. Well, that's what you get for not paying attention. Mm-hmm. This one's probably the longest one that I have because there was literally just an update in this case posted like across news sources yesterday. Oh, that's exciting. And there's a big documentary of this on Netflix. So I think a lot of people have heard about this one, but I actually hadn't. And there's like a bunch of theories about this case, which is kind of why I I was going to bring it up because... There's just so much going on here. And so it's very, very interesting. But this is the case of Madeline McCann, which sounded probably familiar to you because it's such a massive case. Because we you'd mentioned earlier, you're like, that sounds really familiar. Yeah. It's probably because. Well, I'm just fascinated with it, too. So I've read up a lot on the Madeline McCann case and I'm interested by it. But I feel like I might have mentioned it in an episode. So if this isn't new to people. We're sorry, but I'm sure Amanda has a lot more detailed information. And now there's updates on it, so I'm excited. Well, I don't think we've, like, gone into a ton of detail about this. So this yeah, is Yeah, I probably just, just mentioned it, maybe. I don't yeah, know. I think we've mentioned it. All right. So Madeline McCann lived with our family in the UK. And this is – they they basically went on a vacation in Portugal – and she went missing. But the way that she went missing was super irresponsible and sketchy. Like, would you leave your kids alone to go out and drink and then just go check on them every now and then? Oh, Probably yeah, I not. for sure 1,000% believe that the parents did this. It's just like Jean Benet. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, yep. the family definitely had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then they also... Gave made her a ward of the court of England shortly after her disappearance, which gave the court power to act on her behalf. Also, kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. And both of her Sounds parents like are. They phys- also think that. 
both of her parents are physicians. So they know yeah. what to how to do That's things. The number one reason why I think that her parents did it. Because they right. they would leave their kids and they're like, oh, they're right there. They're easily easy to get to and go check up on them. Okay, how easy then is it also to give them a sedative and maybe give too much? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest theories. So Madeline McCann was born on May 12th, 2003. And she disappeared May 3rd, 2007. So poor little baby was only four years old, like almost four years old. She disappeared from her bed in their vacation apartment at a resort in Portugal. And the disappearance has been described as the most heavily reported missing person case in modern history. Now, yes, there's been quite a few, but this is up there because this little girl was four years old and she just vanished. Mm -hmm. And she still vanished. And German prosecutors in 2020 have stated that they assume that she is now dead. So they were on holiday, which in the UK, they say holiday, we say vacation. From the UK with her parents, Kate and Jerry McCann, her two-year-old twin siblings, and a group of family, friends, and their children. She and the twins had been left asleep in the ground floor apartment while the McCanns and friends dined in a restaurant about 180 feet away from the apartment. Still too far. Your kids should be with you or you should just fucking order food. Mm-hmm. Or leave your kids with fucking babysitters or something. I was going to say, you, you're you rich people. You're all doctors going out to this fucking vacation together with your kids. You have money. Hire a nanny that night. I was literally about to say, bring a nanny with you. Mm-hmm. Or something. You know? Yeah. The parents checked on the children throughout the evening until Kate discovered she was missing about two hours, one and a half hours later. But what's weird is when the when she came back, she didn't just say, I can't find my daughter. She literally came back and the first words out of her mouth was something like, they took her, they took her. Mm-hmm. Seems like she's really setting the stage for something, doesn't she? Doesn't right. it? Right. Like, come on. Over the following weeks, particularly after misinterpreting a British DNA analysis, the Portuguese police came to believe that she had died in an accident in the apartment and that her parents had covered it up. The McCanns were given suspect status in September 2007, which was lifted when Portugal's attorney general archived the case in July 2008 for lack of evidence. The parents continued the investigation using private detectives until Scotland Yard opened up its own inquiry, Operation Grange, in 2011. The senior investigating officer announced that he was... treating the disappearance as a criminal act by a stranger, most likely a planned abduction or burglary gone wrong. In 2013, Scotland Yard released EFIT images of men they wanted to trace, including one of a man seen carrying a child towards the beach that night. Shortly after this, the Portuguese police reopened their inquiry. Operation Grange was scaled back in 2015, but the remaining detectives continued to pursue a small number of inquiries in April 2017 as significant. In June 2020, the police in a German city stated there was a new suspect in McCain's disappearance. The disappearance attracted sustained international interest and saturation coverage in the UK reminiscent of the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, which is obviously huge. Like, it gained almost that much media attention as Princess Diana. That's crazy. I mean, it's just poor little girl. Like, Yeah. The McCanns were subjected to intense scrutiny and baseless allegations 
of their involvement in their daughter's death, particularly in the tabloid press and on Twitter. In 08, they and their traveling companions received damages and apologies from express newspapers. And in 2011, the McCanns testified before the Levison Inquiry into British press misconduct, lending support to those arguing for tighter press regulation. Yeah, I got bullied because they killed my child. Mm-hmm. So we talked about how they were both physicians and these family friends, they like worked together for a long time. Jane, so one of the family friends report that she saw a man carry a child away from the resort 45 minutes before Madeline was reported missing. And that became one of the most discussed aspects of the case. And they do have a composite of this, but it's like incredibly vague. Like the police really fumbled this case a lot in Portugal. They literally released a composite that is like an oval with no details on it. Like awesome. that's it. Yeah. Like why the fu- why even bother? Mm-hmm. The McCann's children slept in a bedroom next to the front door, which the McCann's kept locked. The bedroom had one waist-high window with curtains and a metal exterior shutter, the latter controlled by a cord inside the window. The McCann's kept the curtains and shuttered closed throughout their vacation. The windows overlooked a narrow walkway and the residence car park, which is a parking lot, which was separated by the street by a low wall. Madeline slept in a single bed next to the bedroom door on the opposite side of the room from the window while the twins were in travel cots in the middle of the room. There was another single bed underneath the window. So just kind of give you an idea of that room. But another weird thing, the twins never woke up. Mm-hmm. They don't remember, and they're, like, old enough to where they could communicate. It's not like they're newborns, you know? Mm-hmm. They could definitely communicate what was going on. Madeline was left asleep in short sleeve pink and white. Marks and Spencer's Eeyore pajamas next to her comfort blanket and toy cuddle cat. At 2.30, the parents left to dine with wine and friends, and then they basically were out all night. So, at 20.30, I'm sorry, not 2.30. So the Tanner sighting. So this is what she told. There's the impression of the man is basically like, it looks almost like an either like a, just a very not, it's not abstract, but he's literally faceless. It's just a man with black hair, like a black or a brown jacket and like khaki pants carrying a like faceless child. Like how does that help anyone Mm -hmm. you know what i mean right he was heading east away from the front of apartment 5a which is where they were doesn't really do anything for anyone but the sighting became important because it offered investigators a time frame for the abduction but scotland yard came to view it as a red herring in october 2013 they said that a british holiday maker had been identified as the man tanner had seen and he had been returning to his apartment after collecting his daughter from the ocean club scotland yard took photographs of the man wearing the same or similar clothes to the ones he was wearing on the night and standing in pose similar to the one tanner reported the pajamas the pajamas his daughter had been wearing also matched tanner's report Operation Grange Lee detective said they were almost certain the Tanner sighting was not related to the abduction, but that took years. I mean, this happened in 07 and that was 2013 that they made these connections. Mm -hmm. So again, did not really help. 
The rejection of the Tanner sighting as crucial to the timeline allowed investigators to focus on another sighting of a man carrying a child that night. This one reported to the Portuguese police on May 26, 2007 by Martin and Mary Smith, who had been in the resort on vacation from Ireland. Scotland Yard concluded in 2013 that the Smith sighting offered the approximate time of the kidnapping. The Smith saw the man that night about 460 meters or 500 yards away from the apartment walking away from the ocean club and toward the beach. He was carrying a girl about three to four. She had blonde hair, pale skin, was wearing light colored pajamas and had bare feet. The man was mid thirties, five, seven to five, nine slim to normal build with short brown hair, wearing cream or beige pants. He did not look like a tourist according to the Smiths and had seemed comfortable, uncomfortable carrying the child. Based on the Smith's testimony, they created some EFITs, which EFITs are like computer composited sketches of faces. Okay. In 2008, and PIs hired by the McCanns were publicized, and these were publicized in 2013. Now, basically, we kind of talked about how the Portuguese police really fumbled this. And they they did. So they briefly searched at midnight. They took fingerprint without gloves on. Isn't that like, you know, yeah, like, yeah. come on. Now, they did bring in some some dogs, which is this is kind of like where the. The sus- I don't know if you read about this, but the suspects on the parents is really high. Because the dogs didn't pick up anything except for they did pick up things like these dogs are supposed to catch like, you know, DNA from the victim. Mm -hmm. Blood. They caught something. Yeah, exactly. They caught something in the closet. Mm -hmm. They caught something in the trunk of their car. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of let that go. Yeah, that's like the smoking gun for me, knowing that they're doctors, where they easily could have had access to a sedative, and knowing that the only, these dogs that are trained to get this stuff only found stuff in their car. It's the the parents' car that they rented for this fucking vacation. Not that it had even would have done anything, like, if it was the parents, but they didn't even put in roadblocks until 10 a.m. the next morning, had there been a kidnapper. Yeah, dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Because that gave the parents all the time, so hide her body in the closet for now, let's go freak out, then let's take it to the car and go dump it. Exactly. Which the dogs picked up. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Especially with the twins not waking up. Like, that definitely sounds like sedation to me. Yep. The first indication that the media were turning against the parents was on June 6th, 07, when a German journalist asked them during a Berlin press conference whether they were involved in the disappearance. On June 30th, a 3,000-word article entitled The Madeline Case, A Pact of Silence, appeared in Seoul, a Portuguese weekly stating that the McCanns were suspects, highlighting alleged inconsistencies between their statements and implying that the Tanner sighting had been invented. The reporters had obtained the Tapas 7s, which is what they called the parents' mobile numbers, and that of another witness, it was apparent that the inquiry had a leak. 
This and later articles in the Portuguese press invariably followed up in the UK made several allegations based on no evidence, which would engulf the McCanns for years on social media. They included the McCanns and the seven were swingers that the McCanns had been sedating their children and that the group had formed a pact of silence regarding what had happened the night of the disappearance. Much was made of apparent inconsistencies within the between within and between the McCanns and the seven statements. The police had asked group questions in Portuguese and an interpreter had translated the replies. According to Kate McCann, the statements were then typed up in Portuguese and verbally translated back into English for the interviewees to sign. Among the inconsistencies was whether the McCants had entered the apartment by the front or back door when checking on the children. According to the PJ case file, Jerry stated during his first interview on May 4th that the couple had entered 5A through the locked front door for his 2105 and her 22 o'clock checks. And in a second interview on May 10th, he had entered through the unlocked patio doors at the back. The patio doors could be unlocked only from side from inside, so the parents had left them unlocked to let themselves in, which is so stupid. Mm-hmm. There was also inconsistency about whether the front door had been locked at all. Jerry from Sunday Times in 07, December 07, said that they had used the front door earlier in the week, but it was next to the children's bedroom, so they had started using the patio door instead. The PJ also questioned why, when Kate discovered Madeline was missing, she had run to the tapas restaurant, leaving the twins alone in 5A, when she could have used her cell phone or shouted to the group from 5A's balcony. Another issue was the exterior shutter over Madeline's bedroom window could be opened from the outside. According to the journalist Danny Collins, the shutter was made of non-ferrous material slats on a roller blind that was housed in a box at the top of the inside window controlling by pulling on a strap. Once rolled down, the slats locked in place outside the window and could be raised only by straps on the inside. Kate said the shutter and window were closed when Madeline was put to bed, but open when she discovered Madeline was missing. Jerry told the PJ that when he was first alerted to the disappearance, he had lowered the shutter, then had gone outside and discovered that it could only be raised from the outside. Against this, the police said the shutter could not be raised from the outside without being forced, but there was no sign of forced entry. They also said forcing the shutter open would have caused a lot of noise. So the discrepancies contributed to the view that there had been no abduction. Kate's shout of they've taken her was viewed with suspicion, as though they'd been paving the way for an abduction story. Particularly from August onward, these suspicions developed into the theory that Madeline had died in apartment 5A as a result of an accident, perhaps being sedated, and that her parents had hidden her body for a month before retrieving her and driving her to an unknown place in a car they had hired over three weeks. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And then the sniffer dogs came. And then they were taken to an apartment and a wasteland and a beach. And both dogs alerted behind the sofa. And they gave an alert near the wardrobe in the main bedroom. There were no alerts on the beach or the wasteland. And then there was an alert near the car. The only alert was from Eddie when he encountered the cuddle cat, which was laying in the living room. So they had a couple different dogs doing a couple different things. So, yeah. I mean, and then the articles, I mean, there's a ton more information. There's 
inquiry closed, inquiries opened. Like mm-hmm. they set up a fund, leaving those they wanted to raise money for her disappearance, private investigators. They I mean, and over the years, there's all these theories, obviously. There's like seven or eight different theories. Even going as far as to say that Madeline never even existed, which I don't believe that. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, there's like photos and stuff of her. Right. There's sexual assault stories. There's, yeah. But there's, then we get to this German investigation in 2020. In June 2020, the public prosecutor of the Germany city of, I can't say that fucking German word, ordered an inquiry regarding a possible involvement of a 43-year-old man believed to have been living in a borrowed VW camper van in the city at the time of McCann's disappearance. The suspect's car, a Jaguar XJR6, was registered to a new owner the day after McCann disappeared. The prosecutor's office started proceedings in the suspicion of McCann's murder. Hans Christian Walters from the public prosecutor's office stated that they are operating under the presumption that McCann is dead due to the suspect's criminal record. The suspect has been convicted of unrelated offenses of sexual abuse of children and drug trafficking and as of June 2020 is incarcerated in Germany. The suspect was listed as serving seven years in jail for the rape of a 72-year-old pensioner in the same city that McCann was in. On June 3rd, the criminal police office made a public appeal for the information relating to the case. The police stated that they received useful information in 2013 after the case was featured, but that it took years to find substantial evidence for prosecution and that they still need more information. The The prosecutors asked for public information about the suspect's phone number and then the number that dialed him on the day of McCann's disappearance with the with which the suspect's number had a 30-minute connection. On July 27th, German police began searching an allotment in Hanover in connection with the same investigation. So they do believe maybe they have something. And of course, the McCanns are going after people for libel. But do you think they'll get it? Right. I, I don't know. And also, like, at that point, obviously, I would want my name to be cleared but i don't know literally a day ago one day ago this more news on this case broke Mm -hmm. did you see that Uh -uh. the chief suspect of madeline mccann's disappearance was not questioned by the police at the time because he was not at home when the detectives called but christian bruckner was a fugitive in german uh, was a German pedophile living in the city at the time, the, the same resort where the McCann family was on holiday. So basically this guy that they think did this is was a pedophile in the to- in town at the time that he and he's currently in a high security prison in Germany. He released a cartoon taunting them and the cartoon is basically of them hiring a psychic medium to try to get them to tell them things and he drew it and released it to the media saying basically you'll never figure this out and he's the prime suspect in this case now oh shit yeah so which is really terrible and i don't know if they'll ever have enough to know that if he's the one that did it or not but Mm -hmm. they do believe that she is dead especially if this is the guy that yeah definitely that did it so yeah that's the update as of a day ago 
this cartoon comes two months after he was re- he released his first sketch in May, claiming his innocence in the case while depicting two prosecutors in a restaurant ordering the fil- filet forensics. So he's maintaining his innocence, but who knows? It's it, convenient to pin it on mm-hmm. if the parents did do it. Right. You know. Sad. Poor little girl. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't... I mean, it matters who did it, but she's still dead. Right, exactly. So. The Boy in the Box. It was the year 1957 in Philadelphia when a hunter found the bruised body of a boy in a J.C. Penny box. The boy, around four to six years old, was nude and wrapped in flannel. He seemed to have died from blows to the head. Fearing his muskrat traps would be confiscated by the police, the hunter didn't report the body. It was two days later when a college student found the body that the police started on the case of America's unknown child. It immediately attracted the media's attention, and flyers of the boy were seen throughout Pennsylvania. Although police received thousands of leads, they were never able to uncover the identity of the young boy. They tried tracing back the J.C. Penny box and checking the boy's fingerprints, but everything led to a dead end. However, there were two promising leads of note. One lead involved a foster home located 1.5 miles away. A medical examiner who pursued the case until his death had a psychic lead him to the foster home, where he found a bassinet similar to the one that was sold in the box. Hanging on the clothesline were blankets, much like the one wrapped around the boy. He believed the boy belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the home, and she didn't want to be found as an unwed mother. Police interviewed the couple, but closed the investigation. In 2003, they opened the case again when interviewing a woman identified as M, who claimed her abusive mother bought the child back in 1954. According to her, her mother killed the boy in a fit of rage. Because M was mentally unstable, the investigation was closed as well, leaving the boy to remain America's unknown child. America's unknown child. Yeah. That's sad. These are also sad. Yeah. Yeah, that is... I mean, last time we had at least things that the government probably did to make us unhealthy. (laughs) Right. This is just people being horrible to other people. Mm Mm-hmm. Or their own children. Right. Which... I don't know if that's, I mean, I think that's worse than just a stranger being terrible to a stranger. Yeah. Because those babies trust you. And again, I'm not saying that the parents did it. I'm just saying. Right. You never know. Mm-hmm. And this next one's dead, like for sure. 100% like for sure. dead. Like we know this one's dead. Robert Wan. Robert Wan was murdered on the night of August 2nd, 2008, while staying with a few friends in Washington, D.C., Juan was stabbed in the chest three times, one of those entering his heart and one entering his lungs and killing him within 60 seconds. There were three other men home, all of whom Juan considered friends. Mm, Not great friends. However, all of the other men claim no knowledge of who killed him. Yeah. Robert and Kathy Juan were looking forward to an exciting future together. After a beautiful wedding, the couple moved into a home in Oakton, Virginia, where Robert worked as a lawyer. Robert, only 32, was offered a prestigious job as general counsel of Radio Free Asia in D.C. 
On any other occasion, Robert would have driven home after stopping by the station, a commute of only 30 minutes. But tonight, he sought to make a good first impression to the night shift employees by deciding to stop in. It was already a long day, an early wake up and the ride to the metro, and an all-day continuing law education class. By the time Robert left the station, he was already ready for bed. Fortunately, Robert was an expert planner, and two weeks prior, he reserved the guest bedroom at a friend's house, a stunning three-story row house, 1509 Swan Street in downtown D.C. But around 11.30 p.m., a 911 dispatcher received a frantic call from the Swan Street residence. The caller was a friend of Juan's and a tenant living in the home. The caller's name was Victor Zaborski and can be heard hyperventilating, speaking quickly, and shaken up. Now, if you listen to this 911 call, the operator did a terrible job. It's so infuriating. Oh, he clearly says his name is like Victor Zaborski, and she's like, ma'am, I'm, ma'am, I'm going to need you to calm down. And it's like, bro, <laughs> first of all, you're no. And it's like, is he breathing? Is there blood? And it's like, I've just said. Right. He got stabbed like three times. Of course, there's blood. Zaborski recalls that him and his partner, Joseph Price, heard a chime at the front door, followed by a harrowing scream coming from one floor below. Zaborski and his partner ran downstairs to the second story and, and found Juan dead on the fold-out guest bed, a bloody knife resting on the nightstand next to him. Zaborski had asked the operator the exact time while on the call, so we know the paramedics arrived on scene at 11.54 p.m. Standing on the front porch in a white bathrobe and freshly showered was Victor Zaborski, still on the phone. He led the paramedics upstairs. The paramedics rushed upstairs, stretcher unfolded, not knowing who or what to expect next. Before reaching the top stair, they are greeted by another roommate of the home, Dylan Ward. The EMTs noted Ward kept his mouth shut, and when asked the whereabouts of the victim, Ward simply pointed toward the guest bedroom and walked back to his own room. Robert Wan lay on his back on a fold-out bed. The paramedics noted he was pulseless, unresponsive, pale, and cold to the touch. Paramedics knew that reviving him now would be a futile effort. Juan's night guard was in his mouth. He was wearing green nylon gym shorts and a gray and white William and Mary tee. When Kathy Wan was asked about Robert's routine, she told police that her husband also wore the night guard to bed, but never wore a shirt because of excessive night sweating. Robert's wallet and personal items were laid neatly on the room's desk, and on the nightstand next to his corpse was a black-handled steel-bladed kitchen knife. The knife was smeared with his blood. An hour after Juan arrived at his friend's townhome, he was gruesomely murdered, but not one of the three men in the house would admit to any knowledge of the crime. These three men were roommates and were in a polyamorous relationship and considered themselves a family. The house's owner, Joseph Price, had known Juan for several years before they met at William and Mary University. The other two men, Victor Zaborski, the 911 caller, and Dylan Ward, a massage therapist, met Robert Juan later but still considered themselves friends. Joseph Price was a successful lawyer, focusing much of his time on gay right equality campaigns, and Price was be Bryce began a relationship with Victor Zaborski in 01, adding Dylan Ward into the group in 03. The entire relationship revolved around Joseph Price, whom shared half of his personal time with Zaborski and the other half with Ward separately. Both Price and Zaborski attended the Wands wedding in 03. The official autopsy of Robert Wan introduces more question than it gives answers to what actually happened. All three of the stab wounds in the victim's chest were unusually uniform in dimension, orientation, and depth. 
Usually when a victim is repeatedly stabbed, the incisions differ in depth and dimension. This is the result of the victims as he struggles for survival. However, this was not the case in Juan's murder, meaning that he must have been incapacitated, like drugged or bound, and was not able to control his movements. Also noted was many small needle puncture marks on the right ankle, left neck, chest, hand, and forearm inside the left elbow, all of which showed evidence of medical intervention. Was he drugged? And if so, with what? It is no doubt that he died a horrific and agonizing death. The medical examiner noted one stab perforated his heart at the aortic root and transected his left anterior descending coronary artery, which effectively shut down his heart and caused him to become unconscious within 60 seconds of the injury. The autopsy also noted two other stab wounds, one penetrating the diaphragm, the third incision slicing through his small intestine. Dissatisfied with the lack of cooperation with all three tenants, police decide to tear apart the Swan Street home, desperate to find any clues. What they found was shocking. In one of the men's closet contained a large box of ecstasy pills and BDSM sex toys, including but not limited to an electroshock stimulation device known as the Aerostec 302R. This device includes a cock ring that fits around the penis of the user or the victim to stimulate an arousal effect, the final result being forced ejaculation either desired or not desired. Robert Wan was bound and or drugged and forced to wear it. The medical examiner also verified that this device was most likely used on Robert as his own semen, just his, was found on his testicles and inside his anus. The fact was apparent that Robert Wan was sexually assaulted before he was stabbed to death. With the evidence made publicly available, one can easily deduce that one, two, or all three roommates were involved or knew who was involved in the murder of Robert Wan. Charges were levied on all three roommates, including tampering with evidence and conspiracy charges, but all three parties were acquitted by a bench judge, noting that she also believed the men handled the murder or knew who was, but there was not enough evidence to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Jeez. Those motherfuckers. Also, his poor wife. Mm-hmm. There is a website called Who Murdered Robert Wan, and Wan is W-O-N-E dot com. And this website has been active and going since December 08, since all of this started. And it compiles every single article, piece of evidence court documentation everything about everything that has happened since 08 all the way up until it was in the news again in september 09 there's even a place to contact the editors like if you have more information so i don't know if this is run by family of the victim or what but it's still copyrighted as of 2021 and they're still keeping it active so they still clearly are seeking this answer Wow. Yeah, it's kind of like the FBI one that's just so eerie, you know, Mm -hmm. except this one is just a private, privately run. They have galleries on crime scene photos, on the victim, on the suspects, uh, just photos of them. Like, they want you to know. And the crime scene photos are, they have videos of the court cases it's just so weird and like there's a picture of this towel they put on the body and you would think with three stab wounds it would be like really bloody and it is like 
not at all, which is so weird. Mm-hmm. So that's just such an odd case. Like maybe it was like a sex thing gone wrong because I don't know. I don't know. Super weird though. That one's the most interesting to me, I think. Yeah, agreed. Totally. I want to know more, which I guess, you know, everyone does, but yeah. All right. My last one is also my longest. This is the Glico Morinaga case. Okay. Brace yourselves because this case is as twisted as a TV crime show. It deals with the Japanese companies Izaki Glico, known for its Pocky Snacks, and Morinaga. In 1984, two armed men in masks broke into CEO Izaki's mother's home and bound her, taking the house key of Glico's CEO. Entering his house, they also tied up his wife and daughter. Mrs. Izaki attempted to negotiate money with the men, but they were after something else. Cutting off the telephone cords, they raided the bathroom where Izaki and his other two children were hiding. They abducted Izaki and held him hostage at a warehouse. They issued a ransom for 1 billion yen and 100 kilograms of gold bars. Their plans were discovered when Izaki managed to escape three days later. A few weeks later, just when the company thought it had escaped extortion, vehicles in its headquarters parking lot were set on fire. Then a container with hydrosolic acid and a threatening letter addressed to Glico were found in Ibaraki, where the warehouse was located. This began a string of letters from a person or group that dubbed itself the Monster with 21 Faces, named after a villain in a Japanese detective series. The letters threatened the company's products, claiming that their candies were laced with potassium cyanide soda. Glico was forced to pull the products off the shelves, resulting in a $21 million loss and the layoff of 450 part-time workers. After months of tormenting Glico, the monster with 21 faces decided to look for fun someplace else. Their final letter towards the company read, We forgive Glico. With that abrupt ending, they turned their sights on the food companies of Marathi Ham, House Foods Corporation, and Fujia. In exchange for stopping their harassment towards Maradia, one of his employees was to hand them ransom money on a train. That was when an investigator, who disguised himself as an employee, saw the prime suspect known as the fox-eyed man. The man was well-built, his hair cut short and permed, with eyes like those of a fox. After dropping the ransom as instructed, he and another investigator attempted to follow the fox-eyed man, only to lose him. They would get a second chance later on, but he again evaded them. After continuing harassment towards the police, a year later, police superintendent Yamimoto committed suicide by setting himself on fire, ashamed of his failure to capture the fox-eyed man. Five days following the death, the monster with 21 faces sent its final letter to the media. Yamimoto of Shiga Prefecture Police died. How stupid of him. We've got no friends or secret hiding place in Shiga. It's Yoshino or Shikata who should have died. What have they been doing for as long as one year and five months? Don't let bad guys like us get away with it. There are many more fools who want to copy us. No career Yamamoto died like a man. So we decided to give our condolence. We decided to forget about torturing food-making food companies. If anyone blackmails any of the food-making companies, it's not us, but someone copying us. We are bad guys. That means we've got more to do than bullying companies. It's fun to lead a bad man's life, Monster with 21 Faces. And with that final statement, the Monster with 21 Faces disappeared, never to be heard from again. 
Yeah, that doesn't sound real. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like a, a movie. Yeah. Especially with all the, like, the names, the fox eye and mm-hmm. the 21 faces. It also kind of sounds like an anime thing. Definitely. You know? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I could see it being in a, like, a show or a movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That was my last one. Definitely cool. sounded like some bad people just wanting to do something. As they do. Thank you guys for hanging out with us for this haunted happy hour. Of course, you can find us on all the socials. Everything is the Extra Sisters podcast and Twitter is at the Extra Sisters. And you can join us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash the Extra Sisters podcast. Until next time, stay creepy.